Welcome to the Search the Scriptures podcast, where we dive into scripture and provide the explanation of it in the most accurate light that we can. Search the Scriptures is a podcast that is dedicated primarily to the Christian, challenging our brothers and sisters along with ourselves to see if we have set aside the commands of God to set up our own traditions. To do this, we use scripture to explain scripture. Please join us on this journey. So we will continue our study today on Romans, and we're going to start on Romans chapter 7 today. Um, as usual, we will break the chapter at least in two parts, at least in two separate teachings. Um, today we're going to have and discuss the first um, 13 verses and of the tra- of chapter. Hopefully we get through the first 13 verses. Um, the last portion of the the last portion of the chapter itself, verse fourteen through twenty, uh, I'm sorry, through twenty five, deals with deals with a topic that will dedicate a full teaching in itself, which is Paul's account, or uh, Paul basically is expressing the conflict within him and the conflict of what it seems to be two opposing forces that he sees uh, exhibited and being in, in action inside of him. Um, so we'll dedicate a hopeful teaching to that. But today, starting in the first verse here, we're going to see that Paul is actually going to draw from the law. And when I say from the law, I'm not saying necessarily that he's going to go to the Mosaic law and go through the law itself. But he's going to draw examples from the law and he's going to talk about law in general and how that applies to us today to give us an example of how we are to treat it, to give us an example of how we are now bound um, to a different law, if you want to see it that way. Uh, remember that he remember that he just went over the transition or the transfer from being under the tyranny or from being attached and being slaves to one and then to becoming slaves of another, right? We, we saw that transition that the believer goes through when we are redeemed, when we receive Christ, where we were once slave to sin and we had in, in a relationship of involuntary servitude to sin. It was the only thing we could do. We have no capacity um, in that state, we had no capacity to please or serve God. Um, in fact, even the biblical principle of not being able to serve two masters applies to that as well. And it was the reality that we live to then becoming slaves to Christ and becoming slaves to righteousness. That is something that he conveyed and explained already. And keeping that in mind, it's, it's, it's a good to have that in our minds, it's good to um have a reminder of that because he's going to continue on the same idea now he's going to show us how is it possible now that we're actually bound to a new master well to put it in simple terms is because we died right so because we died we're now able to be outside of the jurisdiction of one so that we can be tied or in a way remarried or now attached to another. So the only way that we could have that we could be severed from the relationship to one, it was by dying. So we had to die in order to now be free to be attached or the correct word or the correct language would be to now be married to another. Now, the reason why I'm using this language is because it's going to be the same language that Paul is going to use here. Now we we have to we have to keep in our minds, and we it has to be clear, right? Because we see a lot of references to the law, and we see Paul and throughout Romans, not just this chapter, throughout Romans in general, and we see Paul making stops many times and asking the rhetorical question or asking the question that begs the answer no when he said things like 
what do we say? Is the law evil? Is the law sin? You know, because I'm saying that the law can't save you, because I'm saying that the law actually ends up accursing you and condemning you, so does that actually mean that the law is bad? Is it? No, may it never be, right? Those are his exact words, may it never be. Now, we have to we have to know why is that, right? The law is actually the reflection of God's standard, the reflection of His holiness, but the law cannot do anything as far as to man, right, man or woman, other than condemn them. Now, why is that? It's because man within itself, himself, cannot fulfill the law. So keep in mind that because the law is good and because the law is given by God and because the law is a reflection of God's character, theoretically, I say theoretically, theoretically because it's true, in, the in theory, if you are able, if you were able to fulfill the law, you could then be saved in the sense of, well, if you were actually able to fulfill all the precepts to perfection like Jesus did, then you could actually gain eternal life and you could actually attain righteousness because the law itself is perfect and holy and it's good. And it's given by the life giver. But you see, that's never going to happen, right? So I'm not saying that you can get saved through the law. No. I'm saying that in theory, if you would have been able and you actually had the capacity to fulfill the law, then you could have attained righteousness. However, that is impossible to you. And it will always be impossible to you. And when I say to you, I mean fallen mankind, and to us before being in Christ. And because of that, the law is not going to do anything other than actually condemn you. right? So Paul is going to teach in this chapter certain things about the law and the new relationship of the law to the believer. And to put up one point immediately out there is the fact that the law, and we'll see this in the first six verses or so, but the law no longer cannot, no longer condemns the believer, can no longer condemn the believer, right? Why is that? Well, that that is the actual expression. When we hear the expression, we're no longer under the law, that's exactly what it means. It, it, mean, it doesn't mean anything related to obeying the law or following the law or not being under the rules of the law or being freed being free to do whatever we want as far as the rules don't apply none of that is necessary now it has nothing to do with that so when paul expresses or when the bible tells us we're no longer under the law it has nothing nothing to do with being free to do whatever we want and somehow think that we're above the law and that we no longer have to follow those precepts. It has nothing to do with that. Not being under the law, what it means is that you're no longer under the condemnation of the law. In other words, the law no longer condemns you. That's all it means. Not being under the law, that's what it is. It doesn't mean that you're free to live out a life that you want and not follow God's moral standard anymore. Again, that I think that's something that we need to have clear, clear in mind. Now, the law continues to convict because the law, and this is something that we'll see in verses 7 through 13 or so, the law convicts unbeliever because the law was present, right, when we actually compared ourselves and our eyes were open we compare ourselves to the standard of god and we know and we and it's revealed to us that we can't measure up to that and we actually need a savior that the law does that to the unbeliever 
but then it continues to work in the believer as well because the law continues to convict the believer of sin. And now this is going to be relevant with what we'll discuss in the second half of the chapter when we see the believer still trapped in that struggle between two opposing forces. And we already said in previous teachings that the believer doesn't have two natures anymore. It's not thinking or the understanding that the believer has a split personality, that the believer lives in a constant in a in a constant um state of having a multiple personality disorder spiritually speaking in the sense that you are you can be under the flesh in the flesh and you can be in the spirit it is absolutely unbiblical there's nothing in the bible that actually teaches of that there's only one new nature you are born again you are a whole new person that is what it means to really to, for the all things to have passed away the problem is, as we said before, is that you are trapped inside of a vessel that has yet to be redeemed. You are trapped inside of a vessel where the work has not been completed yet, and you have not received a redeemed body, an unperishable body yet. That's the problem. And that's the struggle that we will see in the second um, half of the chapter. But again, I heard a hand come up. Oh, yes. Yeah, so I was going to say uh, when you were speaking earlier about uh, just just slightly earlier, we were saying that theoretically, if we can follow the law, then we could uh, then, then, then we could be saved. Uh, God does kind of lend that towards uh, towards Job when he's speaking to Job, as you said, I was reminded of it. When he's speaking to Job, he says, uh, I'm going to go from Job chapter 40. I'm going to start. Uh, uh where is it at at eight joe 48 and it says would you discredit my justice would you condemn me to justify yourself do you have an arm like god's and can you can your voice thunder like his then adorn yourself with glory and splendor and clothe yourself in honor and majesty unleash the fury of your wrath look at all who are proud and bring them low look at all who are proud and humble them crush the wicked where they stand bury them all in the dust together shroud their faces in the grave then i myself will admit to you that your own right hand can save you so he says it also in, in, in a sense that if you do all these things then god himself says he would admit to you that you can save yourself amen amen i mean th yeah thank you for bringing that up that's that's a great point that is that's that's a great passage right there showing that like i said what what in theory is true what what is implicit in theory in what we're discussing in the in the chapter that we have on hand or in romans in general you can see it actually expressed there in, in job and god god himself insinuating that right um so yeah the, the law is perfect so if we were actually if we were actually able to fulfill that perfect standard then we could we could achieve it but again that's only in theory right that's this that's only an idea that's never going to happen it's a theory that if we would actually be able to do it then it would have a result but it's a result that it would never happen because we can't fulfill it to begin with but yeah great point brother um so the law continues to serve a purpose in the life of the believer as well right because it still sets the standard now that we actually have a new nature now we can actually live a life pleasing god and doing the things of god now we can take that law and those precepts and those judgments and say lord i know that this pleases you lord you have revealed to me what is pleasing to you how you want me to live now that i am a new creation i will live out my life this way right now we are going to have our stumbles and our struggles begin because of the problem that is described in the second half of the chapter but now we're actually empowered to fulfill in a way i'm not saying fulfill in the sense of being perfect but now to fulfill and live out those precepts and that standard that moral standard that god had set for us you see before we had nothing to do with it we didn't want anything to do with it 
and we absolutely didn't have the capacity to do it at all because we were actually involuntary slaves to sin. Now that we are slaves and enslaved to righteousness and we are married to Christ, now we have the capacity to fulfill those precepts in the sense of living out God's judgments and God's rules for us and what he asks us to do. So that's very different, if you notice. That is very different from the idea of now I am in total freedom and no longer bond, bound to any rules and no longer bound to any religion and no longer bound to anything. I am just free in Christ. Now, that is completely misinterpreted. It's completely misinterpreted in the sense of giving you the idea, implying that you can live however you want. But that's not the truth. The truth is you have freedom. Absolutely. You are free in Christ. Why is it that you're free in Christ? Because you were under the tyranny of sin before. Because you were living under a dictator. You were the slave to a dictator named sin. Now you are free because you have been redeemed and purchased. So that's where the idea, I am free in Christ, comes in. Absolutely. That is absolutely the truth. But what exactly does that freedom mean? Well, that freedom means that now I have the ability to follow the law. And when I say the law, again, not to confuse things that don't clearly don't apply to us in the context, right? Ceremonial law, right? Sacrifices, etc. I'm not talking about that. What I'm talking about is the moral law, the standards of righteousness, the standards that God gives the believer and the people, his people to live by. So again, it completely dispels and eradicates the idea of living a life without rules, that that's what it means now to be free and have a relationship. Absolutely not. Now you, now you actually have the power to follow those rules, if that makes sense. So the law continue, continues a work in the life of the believer, right? Now, it is clear, it has been made clear that the law cannot deliver a believer from sin. And this is something that we'll go more over when we get to the second chapter. I mean, not sorry, not second chapter, second half of the chapter, right? But always, always keep in mind that the believers who walk in the power of the spirit so that's truly what it means to walk in the spirit again nothing to do with mysticism nothing to do with walking around walking around like like mages and with magic powers and all that it has nothing to do with that walking in the spirit walking in the power of the spirit is actually walking in the way walking in a way able enable and empowered to fulfill the law walking in a way to actually be able to follow the rules walking in a way where you can actually escape temptation walking in a way where you can actually say what is the standard of god in this that i am facing and choosing to act how god wants you to act that is what walking in the spirit means. It has nothing to do with waving a wand around, waving your fingers, dispelling and casting out devils from every bush that you see. It has nothing to do with that. Walking in the spirit, again, is walking in the power to actually fulfill the standard that has been imposed on you. If we don't walk in the power and the spirit, then we're actually letting the deeds of the flesh take root again and notice my, how I say it. We're actually letting the deeds of the flesh. I'm not saying we are on the flesh. We're in the flesh. Or we're, I'm not saying we are getting in the flesh. That is, actually, I'm not going to jump ahead. Just keep that thought in mind. When we get there, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to explain more what I mean by being in the flesh and, how is, and why is actually unbiblical and wrongful thinking for a Christian to say, oh, I was in the flesh. Oh, I got in the flesh. That actually means that you're not saved. So we'll get we'll get to that in a little bit. So starting in verse in verse one, 
says, or do you not know, brethren, for I am speaking to those who know the law. Now, Paul here, and the reason why this is going to make sense, and it is the way that I'm going to explain to you now, is because of what comes right after this, right at the next few verse, um, verses. When Paul says, for I am speaking to those who know the law, he's not speaking about a specific body of codified rules. In other words, he's not just strictly speaking about the Mosaic law here. He's not, you know, speaking about any type of ceremonial law, any specific law. And no, he's talking about law in general. And now he's going to actually use an example and make an analogy. He's going to use an example of marital law, law of marriage, to tell you and explain to you what happened in that transition from slavery to one to slavery to another. And we'll see what what we'll see what he how he does it. So he says, or do you not know, brethren, that the law has jurisdiction over a person as long as he lives? Again, this has nothing with a specific set of laws or rules. Now he's going to say, for the married woman, and again. This is where he's going to you an example of a specific law that exists out there, the marital law, to tell you what happened. Let's see what he says. For the married woman is bound by law to her husband while he is living. But if her husband dies, she is released from the law concerning the husband. This passage is not teaching us about marriage and divorce. It has absolutely nothing to do with that. Why do I say that? The reason why I say that is because Christ and Paul both already address the marriage issue elsewhere. So just to give you an example, if I take Matthew 5, 31 and 32, and we can go there for argument's sake. If we can go, if we go to Matthew chapter 5, verse 31 and 32, it says, it was said, Whoever sends his wife away, let him give a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except for the reason of unchastity, other translations will say sexual immorality, talking about the same thing, makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. So Jesus is addressing here the issue right if we take for example first corinthians 7 i'm sorry let's it's actually matthew as well matthew 19 matthew 19 3 to 12. matthew chapter 19 3 to 12. And it says, some Pharisees came to Jesus, testing him and asking him, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any reason at all? And he answered and said, have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female and said, for this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. He's setting the standard of marriage. They said to him, why then did Moses command to give her a certificate of divorce and send her away? He said to them, because of your hardness of heart, Moses permitted you 
to divorce your wives. But from the beginning, it has not been this way. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife, except for immorality and marries another woman, commits adultery. He even goes as far as, we even see as far as saying, seeing in the next verse where it says, the disciples said to him, if the relationship of the man with his wife is like this, it is better not to, it is better not to marry. And he said to them, not all men can accept this statement, but only those to whom it has been given. So, and we can go back to um, Romans 7. The point that, it, the reason why I bring this here is not to make this a teaching about marriage and divorce, because it's not. What I'm, what I'm trying to show here is that Romans chapter 7 is not teaching us about marriage, marital law, marriage and divorce because this is already addressed in elsewhere in scripture. Paul also addressed that issue in 1 Corinthians chapter 7 for reading purposes right later. But it was all is already addressed extensively. We already know what it is. It is clear. We already know how God feels about divorce and about marriage. We only know the only excuse um, that God gives. That's a separate thing, right? What is applicable here in Romans 7 is the fact that Paul is drawing from law and rules that they know about to explain a point. And he said, okay, we know what the standard of marriage is, right? And we saw that you're just not free to divorce and get married again for any reason you want. You're still going to be an adulterer, an adulterer. You're not free from the law of your spouse. This is actually what it is. So for the married woman is bound by law, to her husband while he is living but if the husband die she is released from the law concerning her husband and we also know this to be true in fact we also know that paul and elsewhere in scripture even encourages young widows to remarry so this is what actually it is death death is what frees someone from the jurisdiction of that law and that is actually comparable to us today in the sense i'm not talking about necessary marital law and and, and, I'm, and i'm saying like our actual body of laws that we're used to in our society because in for example in criminal law when you're charged with a crime you are no longer you are no longer under the jurisdiction of that you're no longer going to be prosecuted if you die i mean you have not seen right you have not seen someone being brought in a casket to court to be prosecuted for a crime doesn't happen if you die there's no longer jurisdiction the law no longer has jurisdiction over you to prosecute you so that's the point that he's making here so he's saying now verse three so then if while her husband is living she is joined to another man she shall be called an adulteress referring back right to what we just read but if her husband dies she is free from the law so that she is not an adulteress though she is joined to another man so he sets a stand he reminded you this is something that you know right okay now i'm using this example to teach you this therefore my brethren you also were made to die to the law through the body of christ Wait, so that, what does that mean? Well, we were under the jurisdiction of the law before, as far as to be prosecuted under it. The law before Christ, all it served as is to condemn us because we can't fulfill it. That is the standard applied to us when it comes to judgment. We're under that judgment. We're under the jurisdiction of the law to be prosecuted by it. So the only way that we can escape that jurisdiction is to die. Just like he gave you the example of the husband and the wife. Just like in marriage law, the only way that you can actually escape and be freed from the law to your husband is if your husband dies. There has to be death involved. 
Because if you just separate, if you just divorce, you're not you're not free from it. You're still an adulterer. Is what he's saying. Well, that's the same standard that applies here. In order for you to escape the jurisdiction of the law and the fact that you're going to be judged by it, you have to die first. So that's why he said you are you were also or you also were made to die to the law. How? Through the body of Christ. Through the body of Christ. This death, right? The body of Christ, this death happened at one point in time. The results from it are complete. They are final. Though it happened all those years ago. Jesus spoke to the truth when he said, it is finished. God himself initiated this death to happen. In response to that, when we exercise the faith, right, in his son, God makes the believing sinner forever dead. Notice how I say forever, dead to the condemnation and the penalty of the law. That's what it means to no longer be under the law. Before, you were to be prosecuted under the law. That was the standard that was going to be used against you when it comes to judgment. Now, no longer that is the case because now you died. And because you died, you escaped the jurisdiction and the judgment of the law. But it's not because you went out there and killed yourself. No, you died through Christ. That's the key. God himself provided the means for you to die in a way that would satisfy the law. So continuing verse 4, you were made to die to the law through the body of Christ so that you might be joined to another. So notice that, right? What do we just see in the example of marriage? You can't marry another well, person. Well, the spouse is still alive. What was that, sorry? Exactly. Yeah, while well, the spouse is still alive, you cannot, you can't, you cannot remarry. Exactly. So here he's applying the same standard and saying you cannot serve Christ, you cannot be married to Christ until you die to your previous master, until you die from the previous law to the previous law that applied to you. Now and only now, after death. You are free to marry Christ. You are free to be joined to another. And it says it right here, so that you might be joined. This is verse 4. So, so that you might be joined to another, to him who was raised from the dead, in order that we might bear fruit for God. Let's not forget that part, right? In order so that we might bring... Um, bear fruit for God. It didn't say, again, for you to do whatever you want. It didn't say for you to live the life that you choose, but to live for Christ. 2 Corinthians 11.2, let's not go there because it's just one small verse. 2 Corinthians 11.2 says, For I am jealous for you with a godly jealousy. For I betrothed you to one husband, so that to Christ I might present you as a pure virgin. Ephesians 5, 24. We can go to this one, which is a few verses. Ephesians, Ephesians chapter 5, 24 to 27. It says... 
starting in verse 24. But as the church is subject to Christ, so also the wives ought to be to their husbands in everything. Now, the key here is not so much to go into marriage. We know what Ephesians teaches about marriage. I'm mainly focused on that first part where it says, as the church is subject to Christ. How is it that we are, as the church, subject to Christ when he is talking about husbands and wives? Because we are literally, that, that is, that's the imagery. That's what it is. We are married to Christ. Verse 25, husbands, love your wife. How? Just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her so that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, that he might present to himself the church in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she would be holy and blameless. This is all talking about the same thing that we're talking in Romans right now. Let's go back to Romans 7. We'll continue in verse 5. For while we were in the flesh, again, this is why I want to make it clear. Paul is clearly using past tense here. He didn't say, for when we get in the flesh, no, we don't look, we no longer have that capability because that's not our nature anymore. For while we were, were past in the flesh, the sinful passions which were aroused by the law were at work in the members of our body to bear fruit for death. Now, when scripture uses the word flesh, depending on where and what context it uses it, it might refer as an, in a non-moral, nothing that has to do with morality, sense just to talk about the physical of it, right? The physical being of man. And I can give you a quick example of that. When John 1.14 says, and the word became flesh and dwell among us. We're talking about Jesus, right? Becoming man. Flesh and bone. Let me make it clear, right? I think this is obvious, right? There is absolutely no way that we can associate flesh with Jesus in the sense of wicked, wickedness and morality. It, itself, it, it is mutually exclusive, right? Jesus and sinful flesh does not go with one another. So it clearly is using the word flesh in just the physical sense. But the Bible also uses the word flesh in other contexts as the actual moral evil, morally evil sense to describe the unredeemed humaneness of man. So, and, and to give you a quick example of that, in Ephesians 2, we can go to Ephesians 2. And I'll start in the first verse where it says, and you were dead. Again, notice, I think, I think it's pretty clear, right? I mean, I think it's obvious that when something is repeated over and over and over again, that normally means that it's something important. That normally means that it's something that we need to pay attention to. And that also means that it's something that is clear. It is literally saying again the exact same thing here. And it says, and you were dead in your trespasses and sin, in which you formerly, notice the past tense language that is using, in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air. You know that we were, in other verses, we'll see that, we were sons of wrath. We were under wrath. 
literally being called sons of Satan. Here is saying, according to the prince of the power of the air, talking about the exact same thing. I mean, it can use different language and different verbiage to tell you the same thing over and over and over and over again. So when we say, when, when someone says that the Bible is cryptic and it is, and it is um, contradicting, it's, it's really a false notion. It's just really lack of knowledge or just lack of reading because it tells you the same thing over and over again in case you in case you're reading through the new testament and you forgot about this in romans it repeats it to you in ephesians and it will repeat it again to you in other places too right and it was already making the point from matthew so it makes it clear over and over and over again it says according to the prince of the power of the air of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience among them we too all formerly pass lived in the loss of our flesh flesh in the sense of the immoral evil right this is this is how it's being used here indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind and were by nature children of wrath even as the rest but god being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us even when we were dead in our transgressions made us alive together with christ by grace you have been saved and raises up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in christ jesus you can go back to Romans 7. But it is telling us the exact same thing. Verse 5 in Romans 7, the past tense, right? What did we just read in Ephesians? Formerly. Formerly we were here. We were sons of wrath. Formerly we were in the flesh. Formerly this is how we live. Formerly, we were just as the sons of disobedience. We were part of them. Verse 5 here in Romans, For while we were in the flesh, the sinful passions which were aroused by the law were at works in the members of our body. Now, what exactly does that mean as far as were aroused by the law? So the law itself is not evil. That point has been made clear many, many, many times, right? But here's the problem. Man has a rebellious, as part as the wickedness and fallenness of man, a.k.a. being in the flesh. There is a rebellious nature. Now, that rebellious nature is awoken when there are rules, place. What do I mean by that? Well, if you don't have rules, you don't have anything to break. You don't have anything to violate. You don't have anything to disobey. If there's no clear rule or commandment telling you not to do something. So that's what it means when it says here, being aroused by the law, that our sinful fashions were aroused by the law, it means that. Okay, the fact that now I actually have a rule telling me that I can't do something, now I really want to do it. Now I have clear, now, now I actually have something that I can strive to disobey. I can actually set goals for myself now, right? That's the that's where I'm going. That's the rule. That's the line that I can step over. Well, I'm gonna run over it. So it was awakened by these restrictions, right? These restrictions actually makes us, it stirs that passion in us to want to disobey. And it says that those sinful passions were at work in the members of our body to bear root for death 
Now, it's, it's, it's very clear that that is the absolute only thing that we're going to produce. That is the only harvest that we will get from it. Galatians 6, Galatians 6, 7, and 8 says, Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever a man sows, this he will also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption, but the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. I notice that it says that the one that sows to the Spirit reaps eternal life. We already know that eternal life is guaranteed to the believer. So you cannot be in the flesh and in the spirit at the same time. You do not have the capacity anymore to shift back and forth from one to the other. You have died to that already. Continue in verse 6. But now we have been released from the law. Having died to that by which we were bound, so that we serve. Again, that's the key. It doesn't say we were released from the law so that we may party. No, it says we were released from the law so that we serve in newness of the spirit and not in oldness of the letter so again being released from the law means being free from the penalty the liability the spiritual penalty and liability eternal damnation from the law that's what we're free that's what we're released from those penalties no longer have jurisdiction over us they're not applicable anymore But now we serve. Now we come become the bond servant and the slave to serve God in the newness of spirit and not in the oldness of the letter. Again, we no longer have to wonder, well, in theory, in theory, if I'm able to fulfill all these precepts by the letter, how it says it. The mate, I, I can achieve it. We don't have to worry about that. We don't we don't serve in the onus of the letter anymore. Again, that doesn't mean that doesn't mean these rules no longer apply. These rules no longer give me a good standard to follow. These rules is not what I should be striving to follow. No, it has nothing to do with that. Again, is the standard that is applied for your judgment. For your salvation. It's not the onus of the letter. You don't have to fulfill the law. From point one to point end. To the letter. To gain righteousness. Because righteousness has now been imputed to you. In the spirit through Christ. But now you will serve. Now being empowered by the spirit. You will serve. And serve means following. God's precepts. And doing what he tells you to do. Verse 7. What shall we say then? Is the law sin? May it never be. And before I continue. I kind of didn't. Make it clear enough. I believe. What The point that I was trying to make is that. It is a wrongful. Thought. It is a wrongful expression. To say, I was in the, as a Christian, I mean, I was in the flesh. To say, I got in the flesh. Whenever we, if we have a slip up or whatever, we fall short, we do something, we get angry, or we don't do something that we're supposed to do, it is wrong to say I got in the flesh I was in the flesh because I was in the flesh means 
you are a condemned son of disobedience, son of wrath, being under the prince of the power of the air, under God's wrath, destined for hell. That's what being in the flesh means. So that is not the rightful expression of a believer. You have a slip up. You were not in the flesh. You did not get in the flesh. We will get more into what happens in the second half of the chapter, right? But I'm already already making it clear. It's not because it's not because you died again and resurrected as a slave to sin again and as a son of Satan. Because that's what you're declaring and saying when you say I'm in the flesh because the Bible teaches us that being in the flesh is being that. Verse 7, what shall we say then? Is the law sin? May it never be. On the contrary, and remember, right, he's, a, he's already anticipating the questions that come. When you continue hearing the fact that the law accurses you, condemns you, that you're not going to be saved through it, all this and all that, it's just natural to think, well, was the law bad? No. I mean, it would be. On the contrary, I would not have come to know sin except through the law. For I would not have known about coveting if the law had not said, you shall not covet. That was exactly what we were talking about right now. Sin has always been there. But sin is dormant in the sense that it's not made alive to you until you know what it is. And what is it that tells you what it is? The law. You might have been engaging in all of these things already, but not knowing that it was sin or what it was until you actually get the law, until you get the instructions, until you get the rules, until you get the prohibitions. Now, oh, now, now I know. This, this is what I'm breaking. But sin taking opportunity through the commandment produces. So what is what is it that say taking opportunity to the commandment? This is the starting point, right? This is look let's look at it this way. This is the base of operations of sin, the law. Because now that it is set in stone, now that it is clear, it is written out. Now we launch, right? Now sins launches its evil work through it, right? Because now it says, here's, now it's clear what I, now it's clear what you need to break. Now it's clear what you need to do, right? What, what do you need to do? I need, this is sin speaking, right? I need you to murder. I need you to covet. I, I need you to commit adultery and I need you to lie and steal. So now here, here it is. Here's 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 my base. Here's the rules. Now come on, let's break it together. That's that's what it means, the expression taking opportunity through the law. But sin taking opportunity opportunity through the commandment produced in me coveting of every kind now it is clear you shall not covet let's do it here's what you should have that you don't have here's what your neighbor has that you really 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 should have Coveting of every kind, for apart from the law, sin is dead. And again, sin is dead doesn't mean not actually having life or be non-existent. It's just dormant. 
is the law when it makes it clear to you that fully activates it and overwhelms the sinner with it. I was once alive apart from the law. Now this alive doesn't mean alive in Christ, obviously. But when the commandment came, sin became alive and I died. What this means is not having that clear standard to compare myself to. Thinking that I'm okay. I'm alive, right? Because I don't have anything telling me how bad I am or how wrong I am. But when the commandment came, and now I can compare myself to the standard of God, now I know how truly dead I am. Now that sin that was already in me, now it became clear and obvious to me. It became alive to me, and I died. And this commandment, which was to result in life, the law, right, proved to result in death for me. Verse 11, for sin taking an opportunity, the commandment deceived me and through it killed me. How is it a way that the command, not the commandment itself, but sin through the commandment, how is it a way that our sinful nature makes us believe through the commandment that we're okay, but it's actually deception? I'll give you an example right now. Think of the Pharisees. The idea that you are actually capable of following the law, the idea that you're actually righteous enough within yourself to live up to God's moral standard, is a deception. And this is a way that sin deceives you through the commandment somehow make you believe that you are there or that you can actually do it or that you're doing it thank you lord because i am not like this tax collector And Paul even calls himself a Pharisee of Pharisees. Deceived me and through it killed me. Though he's using first person here and using his example, it applies to all of us. So then the law, verse 12, so then the law is holy and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. So you see, it's not the law itself. It's not the holy commandment itself that deceives you. It is sin through it, taking opportunity through it, that deceives you. This is actually what it means to be in the bad sense, right? Because we all know of actual pure religion. But in the bad sense, in the evil sense, to be religious this is what it means. It has nothing to do with, oh, if I'm trying to follow God's rules, if I'm trying to abstain from certain things, if I'm trying to be conservative in my Christianity, if I'm trying to be biblical, that's not being religious in, like I said, in, in an evil sense. 
This is what being religious in an evil sense is. When we use the commandments and apply in a state of deception, when we use the commandments in a self-righteous way, again, all the Pharisees were. Verse 13, therefore, did that which is good become a cause of death for me? Did that which is good become a cause, an actual cause of death for me? This is what he's saying. Is the actual law itself the cause of my death? May it never be. Again, it is not, it's not the law itself that kills you. It is your sinful self, your sinful inability to live up to it and to fulfill it, to fulfill it, that's what kills you. May it never be, rather, it was sin in order that it might be shown to be sin by effecting my death through that which is good so that through the commandment sin will become utterly sinful in other words true awareness of what sins is and how evil it is you know that this is actually the this is actually the purpose that God intended the law to serve. Like, we we can't forget the fact that God is sovereign. In other words, it doesn't happen by accident. God didn't create the law with the purpose of you thinking, right, that you were actually going to follow it and do it. And then along the way, he was like, oh, I guess that didn't work. And then he had to come with plan B. Uh-uh. This was on purpose from the beginning. God created the law with this actual purpose. And don't believe me. Go to Galatians chapter 3. Galatians chapter 3, starting in verse 19. 19 to 22. Why the law? That, let's let's ask ourselves that question then. What, why? What's the purpose of the law? Why? Why then? Well, let's God Himself answer, right? Let's the the Word of God answer. It was added because of transgression, having been ordained through angels. We do know that angels were involved in the giving of the law by the agency of a mediator until the seed will come to whom the promise had been made. Now, a mediator is not for one party only, whereas God is only one. In other words, literally, God does it all himself. Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? May it never be. For if a law had been given, which was able to impart life, he's going to pay attention here. For if a law had been given, which was able to impart life, then righteousness would indeed have been based on law. But the scripture has shut up everyone under sin. So that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. And we can add verse 23rd there as well. But before faith came, we were kept in custody under the law, being shut up to the faith which was later to be revealed. 
this was literally literally all ordained purposely by god this way why why the law here's the purpose we are entrapped in it we are under his custody it was never going to be based that's why it tells you for if a law had been given which was able to impart life then righteousness would indeed have been based on law it's telling you in the would have but that's not the case we're just imagining here you see again this didn't happen by accident where god had to adjust his plan it was on purpose from the beginning this is how it was going to be again showing us in display not only the righteousness that we've seen not only the mercy that we see not only the love that we've seen but the sovereignty of god and we'll leave it there for today amen open it to any questions or comments I love that how easily we were um how I was just fooled by that like you know to say like that in the flesh is in the flesh and oh that was a wonderful teaching and and it's very, it's, it's very like we can do it like unintentional, right? Like we can do it in a way that we're not intending to say, oh, I'm a son of Satan again, right? It, or I'm unsaved. But again, like it's, it's not the actual rightful expression when we, when we see what the Bible tells us about what being in the flesh actually means. Which again, that's what is more clearly explained in the second half of the of the chapter when it talks about the conflict of the two forces, what it actually means to still have these slip-ups and what happens in our members while still while being believers now. This new struggle that we have, that's what truly happens, not the fact that we go back, we transform back to our old nature, which is being in the flesh. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine on you and be gracious to you. The Lord turn his face towards you and give you peace.